0: Welcome to the All Out Coach podcast, my friends. My name is Tim Michalashvili. I'm your host, CEO, and co-founder of Amadev Pharma, an analytics agency that helps life science organizations improve their performance and engagement with a unique philosophy that merges sportsmanship with the scientific method. As you know, All Out Coach is our opportunity to be introspective, to challenge the conventional norms, stretch ourselves, and lift others. Today, my guest is Johan Lauritsen from Denmark, who is an entrepreneur, medical student, a keynote speaker, also a chronic patient who's crossing the borders between patients and clinical trials, connecting the right patients, educating them, and, and the healthcare institutions across the globe with his company that he founded called Probe. And so he's going to tell us about a lot of the nuances of how to participate in clinical trials today, why we should participate and how we can share data more continuously across our healthcare institutions. Uh, So I'm very excited to speak to him. Johan, welcome to All our Coach. Really glad to have you here.
1: Thank you, Tim. I'm glad to be here as well.
0: (laughs) Yes. Uh, so, would you like to share some of your very unique background with our audience as well? Of because course. you're a patient, a medical student, and an entrepreneur <laughs> as well.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, some might some might say that I'm a bit of a unicorn. Um, I was born with the disease uh, called spinal muscular atrophy, uh, type 2, in short, 5QSMA2. Um, and basically... It all it came from a very very early day for me that I was very very interested in life science, um, and I think it comes to many chronic patients naturally that there is this curiosity and interest because you know having a chronic disease uh, is not something that a psychologist can make you uh, you know it cannot they cannot make it go away um, but for me the most uh, the way that I've always comforted myself with my uh chronic disease was that trying to understand what happened within me what what is going on why do i feel this way and to understand that we have to ask them you know medical biochemical questions to answer and and that's what was my primus motor within uh what i do today um in my uh in my high school where i had uh I was oriented actually in math and physics, but uh, I was attended to a talent pipeline in uh, the University of Aarhus, uh, which allowed me, and also the University of Copenhagen, which allowed me to work on some gene editing. And that is, of course, because uh, my disease is genetic and I wanted to kind of be better at understanding why is there no gene therapy for me right now. And the most direct for me was to sit sit at the working table and say, okay, let's sure. do it. What is, what is stopping me? Um, so I worked on something there called prime editing, which is, uh, many people might have heard about CRISPR, and this is a CRISPR-based sure. gene therapy, um, that instead of making uh, double strand breaks in DNA, which causes some issues, then it actually makes very, very precise point mutation on the uh, nucleotides that is affected by the disease so that interested me and that that got my interest a lot and that's what drove me to when i finished my high school i uh went to uh, university of copenhagen to study for a year on something called molecular biomedicine and uh there i got a lot of knowledge about uh you know biomedicine in a lot of different ways um uh, chemical pathways and Really, you know, extensive research, but there was like lacking this connection with patients for me. So that's why I decided, and actually also because uh, some friends of mine were also patients said, I, uh, I, 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 why is there no uh, doctors with uh, in a wheelchair? Why is there no doctors with a neurological disorder? And that's where I said, I was like, hey, there's actually a, a cross point here. So I I decided to become uh, a medical doctor to pursue this dream and to show everyone that your disability shouldn't restrict you in becoming a doctor. And then I could actually also talk to patients like myself because I felt like I understood how they felt. Um, And that's what brought me to where I is today. Yeah. Uh, You have a
0: truly unique and inspiring story, Johan. And uh, you've already been breaking new ground for a lot of other patients and students and young entrepreneurs and business leaders, also as well. And I think you're introducing a lot of urgency and time sensitivity into healthcare, uh, into researching what we need to research, and you know, and uh, it has also some implications on health equity as well, access to care. As well, right, and which begins first with research, based on your experience uh, and uh, you know studying CRISPR. Uh, just quick follow up on CRISPR for those that may not be in healthcare. Is there a simple way you can just summarize uh, what that is for, in case some, some of our listeners are not in, you know, physicians or you know, in healthcare professionals? Yeah,
1: definitely. So um, all organisms have their different ways of protecting themselves against viruses or attacks or bacterias. Like we have our immune system
0: mm-hmm.
1: for, for bacterias, some bacterias, the case is that they have a part of their immune system mm-hmm. that remembers when, because they have a natural enemy called bacterial fakes, And sure. when they attack the bacteria, they actually in, in, inject their DNA within the bacteria, which kills them. But when it does not kill them, then they they remember the sequence of this DNA, mm-hmm. so that if the same bacteriophage or the same DNA that usually kills them is introduced to them again, then because they remember that DNA, they do not die from it, they can actually survive. And there was some research saying, wow, this mechanism is actually really interesting. Yep. And then they kind of isolated that system um, and they said, okay, this is CRISPR. I think it stands for uh, clustered regular interspaced proto jaser motif. Um, yeah. It's a really long name. Um, yeah. But the point is that CRISPR is a way to change uh, your DNA on to specific change. places.
0: In specific places. Okay. Okay. Uh, great. Of, of the specific places of the genome.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that are affected by that disease, right? Or the that particular...
1: Yes, you uh, use it culprit. a lot therapeutically. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Uh, great. Johan, a lot of patients uh, or healthy individuals who are in care of those patients do not really understand what it means to participate in a clinical trial today. So can you describe some of the processes, what people can expect from a clinical trial and how clinical trials have changed also over the years and what what they are saying, what is a clinical trial today?
1: Yeah. So, um, a clinical trial today versus what it might, uh, what, what many people think, uh, that, that it still is, which it definitely isn't, um, is that it is not, it is not some, some, uh, Schumann experimentary lab where you just give you some <laughs> random chemical and saying, yeah, maybe drink this. Okay, he died. Uh, what a yeah. shame. Let's try a new one. um But a clinical trial is currently the most time-consuming part of developing a new therapy for mm-hmm. especially chronic patients, right? Mm-hmm. One, chronic diseases is the group of diseases where medication is needed the most because by definition, a chronic patient is a patient that doesn't have treatment. Mm-hmm. So currently clinical trials, as it is right now, there's uh, a, it is divided into different phases. And there's three main phases of the clinical trials. So first you make some animal testing as a researcher. You look at, okay, uh, how does the mouse respond to this uh, medication? Maybe you inject it, maybe you stretch it, I don't know, something, right? Depends on the therapy. And then when you kind of have the data that suggests, okay, There's some biomarkers that shows that this mice is benefiting from the treatment. Usually you give the mice the disease and then you try to treat it. And then you also see that there's not significant uh, injuries. It doesn't get sick. Uh, There's not anything, there's not any health risk related uh, to giving the mice the disease. And when you've done enough documenting on animals then you 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 proceed to humans. And you start with a very, very low population. This is the phase, phase one of clinical yeah. trials. And uh, here you have maybe, I don't know, five people, maybe three people that is trying this therapy. It is high risk um, in cases of, uh, you know, maybe progressive diseases like Alzheimer's, for example. Then there's a high willingness because you are ready to try anything to try to maybe get a cure, but but actually you've eliminated a lot of the risk already by doing extensive research on mouse models, for yeah. example, right, or on monkeys. Um, and then when you uh, try to, at, at these participants, if it's healthy volunteers, for example, they get some compensation, they get some money for being a part of it, but most of all, they get to know that they're actually making a major contribution toward curing Diseases and improving the global health, um, and then they move on. If the it passes there, we see okay. These five individuals, usually maybe maybe uh, five healthy, maybe uh, versus five uh, with a current disease. It's called the control group, mm-hmm. and you also have some placebo, which means that you give a fake uh, version of the therapy that you're testing, such that uh, you can document that that the therapy is actually working and that it's not just anything randomly occurring. Yeah. Point being is that then you move on to phase two. There's enough uh, safety, there's enough efficacy. Okay, then there's maybe 30 participants. Okay, uh, here the recruitment part starts to be like, getting trial participants starts to be a concern because, okay, now we didn't only need five participants, now we actually need 30 because you have to have enough data to in humans to suggest that you could apply it in the global market and that everyone can use it safely. Sure.
0: sure. Mm-hmm.
1: And here uh, you have probably the the, the, the same the same criteria uh, for the participants, but there's just more data that needs to be generated, and maybe you made some slight adjustments. And then at the last phase, when you say, "Okay, it's safe for the 30 people as well," then you maybe need 300 participants. And here, in many many cases, the the recruitment part recruiting participants for clinical trials becomes extremely difficult because for example for me um sma spinal muscular atrophy in denmark there's approximately 150 patients in the and whole country and, and ho- in the about, whole country
0: yeah. and how about globally how many patients are there?
1: i don't know uh i don't think that there's very good data on that but it's 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 in it's one in a couple of maybe 300, 400 uh, oh. every year that oh. gets born. Um, yeah. But it, it's rare. And obviously in the US, for example, there's more because the population is, is bigger.
0: Is there um, routine but, testing in prenatal testing? for Is 5QSMA one of the...
1: Yeah, fortunately, um, it wasn't there when I was born. Uh-huh. But seriously, and I mean, this is a very good question, Tim. Uh, it's like one month ago, one and a half months ago, they implemented prenatal uh, screening nationally on all hospitals in Denmark. So it's very, very recent that you actually do this, but now we do it. For me, for my case, uh, when I was three years old, I fell. Uh, Then I couldn't stand up again. And then my mother was like, okay, there's something wrong here. And then you you go to the neurology department, or actually you go to the physician in Denmark, and then they sent you to the neurology department. Mm -hmm. And then they say after some, uh, genetic screening when they see that you you have this many backup genes of SMN2 and you see that you're very weak. Okay. Then you conclude by this genetic and motor function measurement screening that, okay, he has spinal muscular atrophy. Right. Um, mm-hmm. As a reaction, right. Instead of yeah. a screening.
0: Sure. Okay. Well, I know that patients with 5QSMA, I believe have participated in Olympics, not only, but they have won. Even in sports Olympics, as well as in medical uh, innovation Olympics that we participated in this year, where you won the evidence generation uh, category, yeah. uh, by the way, which I want to make sure that those who listen also know. Um, so you participated this year, and which was a first. First ever event, inaugural event, um, but yeah. So I I I know you're explaining uh, the the clinical trial mechanics a little bit as proceeding to
1: phase three, where you need a lot of uh, volunteers, and that becomes difficult as right. uh, you're suddenly running out of patients. Um, mm-hmm. And usually you don't think you're not thinking, as you just mentioned, uh, what is the population worldwide instead mm-hmm. of nationally. Usually researchers uh, and the the researchers listening here might might will probably give me uh, agree with me on this one Um, because they tend to look nationally because they know their democracy better. Of course there's like sometimes uh, requirements. It said that this uh, trial uh, is only testing it on uh, maybe uh, Hispanic, Latino or white Caucasians um, and that it's there's no you know racist reasons for this. It's purely medical reasons because people with different ethnicities actually mm. respond differently to mm-hmm. medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. But that's the only demographic restriction there is. Otherwise, it's in my opinion weird that we don't look outside of the borders. But when you finish phase uh, three trial, there's something called phase four, but that's it's it's not usually the problem. It's the phase one, two, and three. And then you go to market. Actually, then in the U.S., I guess uh, they make an application to the FDA, and when the Federal Drug Agency says, "Okay, that's that's great," or the Food and Drug Administration, that's probably the right, yeah, the yeah that's benefit, right? right? Yes, that's right. Um, and then the 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 FDA uh, approves it, and then it's usually being taken into the normal, you know, packages that you have in your insurances, and you can mm-hmm. you can go to the hospital, and the doctors will prescribe it. And in denmark or in the europe actually it's pretty pretty much the same it's just the european uh, medical uh, council that yeah. does the same thing as fda right and when they've given the the approval then you can actually go to market then you can actually apply it for uh the patients and you've actually managed to yeah. create a treatment for a disease
0: sure okay so that's helpful. Uh, now, how has the data uh, exchange and generation accelerated uh, through some of the more modern approaches to clinical trials? We hear about decentralized clinical trials, which some of our listeners may know about on this podcast, uh, because I think with an important point of what your your description was there is that it's the most time-consuming part of drug development because for a lot of the patients participating in a clinical trial represents a lot of hope, a lot of very very tangible very critical hope, right? To to, to receive benefit therapeutic benefit for a rare disease for a cancer or something like that, right? So uh, yeah. how 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 can uh, they participate in trials that that evolve quickly and that they can know results of as soon as possible. Are, are you seeing improvement in the speed of clinical trial?
1: First and foremost, uh, it's it's happened very recently that we've started talking about clinical trials as a uh, crucial factor in drug development. And yep. that realization has to be done. And it has only been done very recently, uh, which is terrific in my opinion. Um, mm. And, you know, then for the, the, the development of trials I've seen is, uh, since there's been this focus on the recruitment part of mm-hmm. the trials, because that is actually one of the major issues. One is like, how do you get people to participate? This is from the point of view from the researcher, but not from the patient, which there is sometimes, there is still a gap between those. The criterias for the clinical trial participants are more loose now. We had very very strict criteria, especially when it comes to muscular dystrophies. Like uh, SMA is a part of that disease group. Um, then you ha- the clinical trials tend to be characterized by very uh, extensive trial criterias. Right. You have to have almost your. Uh, for my case, for example, I had to know what my motor function measurement thirty two score was. I had to know how many backup genes of SMM2 I had Mm -hmm. and a lot of like very specific points and sometimes even down to the, you know, single point mutation in the DNA. And for, uh, there's, there's, this is one landscape, this is a muscular dystrophies, this is one landscape within the chronic diseases. But then when you look at, for example, diabetes, it's not uh, as problematic in terms of these Israel criterias because it is diagnosed in a different way. And that means that it's harder recruiting for muscular dystrophies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe sometimes you should look at, there's been in, in the trial evolution over time, there's been a focus that we should look at the the population and the demography of our trial participant before we actually publish the trial. Because it costs a lot of money to go out and say, We have have a look at the population, but we have a trial for uh, this disease, and we need 3,000 patients, and we have three months to recruit 3,000 patients, and it's one physician that has to do all of the recruitment, and it's like, that's a bit ambitious. Um, Mm -hmm. And you should probably uh, say maybe you should go for uh, 1,500, because if you look at the data of the participants and the participant pool, then you will see that there's not enough participants, right? I see. So, um,
0: so you, so one of the gaps you've outlined from speaking to many pharma companies is they don't do sufficient due diligence in epidemiological planning prior to initiating a clinical trial. Is that?
1: Yeah. Uh, basically, they don't do. They don't have enough focus about what is realistic inclusion mm-hmm. criteria in see. terms of. What's available out there in terms of patients?
0: Well, you know, I've seen some data also, Johan, that, you know, out of all of the minority populations, for example, that would be eligible across the spectrum, let's say, and that would be 40%, only 15% of them are included in clinical trials, are actually participate in the clinical trials. So our clinical trial populations are not very representative right? So, uh, which is what you have mentioned before, which you alluded to. Uh, but in some, some of this data that I, I've seen, I think, uh, confirms that from McKinsey and from others just that I saw this week. Uh, so what is your company, Probe, doing to help increase access to care and clinical trials? I Maybe you can speak a little bit about and introduce your company.
1: I would love to. Um, so first and foremost, the whole reason that I am very sure that the reason that brought us to where we are today, Mm -hmm. the success we have is only because I realized I had a very difficult time participating in the trial in the US being a Danish citizen. And I was like, I want to participate in this trial. And I do uh, actually up, you know, even though many chronic patients doesn't have that knowledge, I do have the knowledge to know that I fit the trial. But right. the doctors that I went to in Denmark didn't even know what the standard procedure was to send me to the U S even though I just was like, "Yeah, you don't have to think I, I read it for you. Um, and that guarantee uh, is not something that patients can provide to their physicians when they want to be a part of clinical trials. Patients wants to attend to clinical trials first and foremost, because as you mentioned earlier, it's giving them hope, but yeah. also because I mean, you're you're doing something great for your own patient population. Healthy volunteers, which is a requirement in almost all clinical trials as control groups, mm-hmm. they have to undergo the same therapy as the patients to mm-hmm. ensure that it still works only for the patients and not for the healthy participants. That is uh, the reason they should participate. And this is where our engagement part comes in, is that as a... Uh, maybe a close relative to someone with a chronic disease. You're frustrated. You're a family member. He's he's getting worse, right? Um, maybe he's not, but he's feeling miserable. You would wish that. Uh, maybe uh, even though you had a lot of money, but it doesn't work, the drug do- isn't there. Uh, mm-hmm. You have a lot of expertise, but it doesn't yeah. work. The most direct way that close relatives can help is to participate in clinical trials themselves this is why we also do volunteer work right it's because we are yeah. one we're we're one big family of human of individuals that yeah. are trying to help the quality of life and this is where probe comes in so while establishing a community of people that wants to be a part of clinical trials we're giving this community of people that we're slowly like trying to gather them in one big Bank of participants. We're developing a tool that makes clinical trials accessible for them. It means that, and then you you might think, well, yeah, it, of course, I want to be a part of a clinical trial is a good story, but but I'm I'm not sure that I have the same knowledge as you, and, and I don't know how to right. read trials. That's yeah. that's what we're addressing as well. So your and this is where it comes into a key political discussion. It is that your data, your healthcare data, those are your data. Those are not the, the data of the government. Those are not the data of anyone else. It's your data. And you decide what you get to do with these data. And you can enable your health data to actually do the thinking for you. The thing that I had to do the manual uh, way by reading the criterias, the healthcare can, the data can help you with that. So we're developing an algorithm that, based on your health data and the trial exclusion and exclusion criteria, suggests relevant clinical trials for you. It says your health data meets these criteria, mm-hmm. and this is why you get the, these trial suggestions. And okay. that means that you've already done the screening for the physicians. Usually when I go out and I say, hi, I want to be a part of the Right. trials then the physician has to ask a gazillion of questions right because it has to be sure so- that the participants fit their description
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: But that thing is no longer needed when you have the algorithm that we're we've developed.
0: Okay so, yeah. so just to provide a little bit more detail now right as follow-up so uh, if if a patient is not very literate, they don't know a lot about their condition. They cannot answer some of those detailed questions that you mentioned, uh, the nucleotides uh, right involved in in SMA, for example. Your 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 algorithm proactively assesses their condition by asking those questions through a tool through a uh, is it an in, is it an app is it a what 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 kind of tool is it? Um, it, is
1: a, yeah, it is yeah. It is a mobile and web based app. Okay. We think that mainly the researchers will use the web because they upload their trials there. I see. And uh, can handle trials there. And the we think that the patients will usually use the mobile app because that's the most easy mm-hmm. uh, to use thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so just to clarify what what we actually have, yeah. it is an app that shows you all of the trials that your health data fits on. Mm-hmm. And it gives you a very quick view. What is the trial? What are you supposed to go through? What interventions is there? Uh, And then there's an apply button where you simply click, and then you'll get linked with the researcher. Yeah, great. And it saves time for the patients, and it saves time for the researchers. It's a win-win situation.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's. I think you're addressing such a real-world gap there, um, uh, because I think first of all, a lot of patients do not know. What what condition they have the diagnoses as they go from one institution to another, uh, they you cannot expect them to know all of the clinical trials out there. So your company uh, has access to a a global database of trials, as I understand it, right? Just oh, very, yeah, it's across it's various conditions, correct?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. But it's it's important it's important to mention here that there's yeah. an uh. That's a very uh, important notion. And that's maybe because we're a Danish company. I don't know, there's a lot of regulatives, but it's like uh, we don't have access to global health data without people's permission. But what people do is that they go into our page or our app, and then they say, hi, I will put my data here. Mm -hmm. And when you've given consent to that, we have a totally secure encrypted system um, that uses the data that you put here in our cloud server. Yep. Only for the purpose that we say, we cannot go and see your data. It suggests your clinical trials and that's what, that's what it does. So it's okay. not, unfortunately uh, it would be very nice if there was like a very big data, database, but um, what we actually do is just simply say, put your data here, and then this algorithm fixes the rest. Okay. And then you can apply for the trials that you want to be a part of.
0: Okay, a quick question again on the data, uh, just the medical yeah. records. Uh, labs, for example, laboratories, uh, can they be uploaded for a pa- from a patient's doctor, from a patient's last, ho- uh, last hospital visit, for example?
1: Uh, yeah. So I think here, uh, because we're we want to you know, unlock the potential of clinical trials, then we have to address that there's different uh, procedures in different countries because yeah. we're going global, right? We have right. to have a global collaboration to mm-hmm. have enough trial participants. And in terms of your question, Tim, um, in the US, it would be possible for physicians to ask their patient, hi, uh, would you like to? Uh, there's this trial, and you fit it, and maybe right. you would like to try it, and then the patients can give consent to their physician, and then they oh. can upload the data if they will. I see. Also, okay.
0: The reason why, sorry to interrupt. The reason why I asked that, Johan, is because some patients may not know uh, the some of their questions, the responses to the questions in your app, so yeah. they may need some help. Probably, I imagine, from a physician. Right,
1: to, yeah. yeah with- we Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, uh, there's, of course, also access for close relatives that help uh, confused patients uh, get trials.
0: Okay. It's a huge initiative that, again, I repeat to everyone, uh, it gathered a lot of attention and you'll be hearing more from uh, the Medical Affairs Professional Society, uh, another podcast that Johan will be a guest on, and, and an article from Inno, Innovate article there. I'd I'd like to ask you who who are part of the team, the Probe team, also yeah. who, who do you work with to to make this a, a reality, and and what stage is is the app in now? Is it currently available to patients? Hmm.
1: And, and yeah. so I yeah, quick question. Um, so first, uh, the question in terms of the team. Yeah. Uh, I uh, there's me, uh, which I've told a lot about uh, already, and then there's my co-founder uh, Nikola, and he is uh, he is an AI and mathematics uh, student at the Danish Technical University, okay. which means that he has a more like technical understanding of how you make optimal uh, the algorithm optimal. How you program it and how what what your concerns should be right in mm-hmm. terms of the software part mm-hmm. then you have uh our third and last co-founder as it is right now we're actually looking into boarding a co-founder more um and her name is huda and she's a physician uh phd student uh endocrinologist uh, she's working at the with the diabetes uh patients right now mm-hmm. and uh yeah we actually we found uh we found each other uh because she read about me in the Danish newspaper and uh she was like I thought about the exact same idea but just for researchers not for patients and then we kind of uh met and had this symbiosis um and then I also met nikolai but that's what, like that's our founded team that's our lead structure right now okay so it means that we're obviously only three uh people working full-time on this uh which is uh we need more hands, obviously. Sure. But we have some prototyping done. And this prototyping and MVP is being developed by uh, two software engineering uh, students groups at the Danish Technical University. Okay. And we're guiding them and leading them, saying uh, how we think it should be developed. And then we, we they program something, and then we go to the Danish Diabetes Association, and we ask them, what does the actual patients think of this? And sure. then we ask our partner hospitals, what do researchers think of their interface? And then they might say this is not good enough. And then we go back to the software groups and saying, okay, this is uh, this is something that needs to be done to make the optimal application. Okay. And uh, as you can maybe hear, the app is under development, uh, but we are expecting release within the end of January. I can pretty okay. comfortably say, and it will be. Uh, a simple version okay we'll try to gradually implement all disease groups but like realistically speaking we, we might start with diabetes I and see. to ensure that it's closed before you like uh, unleash the hounds
0: yeah yeah wonderful well Johan, uh, thank you very much for uh, creating this huge global opportunity which ultimately means, uh, that you know we can advance healthcare with that urgency and that passion that you bring, I think that I hope a lot of patients will tune in, connect with you, uh, in order to to bring a probe uh, to more patients across the globe, more researchers. Uh, I am a huge fan of yours, of your company, and a big supporter. Um, and so you'll be hearing a lot more about Johan Larsson, my friends, and about Probe that can help many more patients participate in the correct trials. Give not only hope but options and also results through patient summaries, lay summaries afterwards, um, as well that you can uh, that you know the results of the of your data of, of the trials that you participated in as well. So uh, Johan, I just want to leave uh, the last word to you. Uh, at All Our Coach, uh, our slogan is "Stretch Yourself, Lift Others." You are breaking new ground and actually operationalizing uh, this huge gap in healthcare access, health equity. So please, uh, w- what is your call to action to our listeners and to the All Our Coach show?
1: I say that the more, the most important thing that I can stress here. Is that when you're facing a problem, as a patient, as a researcher, researchers are patients as well. Just remember whenever you encounter problems and you try to fix this problem, whenever someone criticizes your solution, just remember that the idea of your solution came from your own problem and it came from your own need and nobody can take that away from you. So keep going no matter what people say.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, Johan. What a great way to finish this conversation for now, but we'll continue our our dialogue. Thank you. Thank you, Johan, very much.
1: Thank you, Tim.